0: Thanks for joining me as we take a look at the Book of Numbers. It's more than just counting. It's studying and learning more about the character of God and the expectations that he has on us as his people. Let's dig in. Well, this is it. We have made it to week 7 of our study. You've completed all your homework. It's been a great resting place as we've sat at the bottom of Mount Sinai listening to God give His instructions and watching the obedience of the Israelites there to Him as we studied in chapters 1 through 10. I was just thinking um, about the homework that you completed this week. Monday morning I was outside cutting the grass, and even though it was horribly hot and terribly dry, the thin little tiny bits on the tops of the grass still needed to be trimmed. Uh, I had gone back into the garage to get some shade and to drink some water, stay hydrated, the sun had been blazing down, and when it does that, it gives me a headache, usually, and it just gets so hot. I was just dripping hot sweat, and it was pretty rough. Um, so I was in the garage, got up my drink of water. I go back out to finish cutting the grass, and a huge white puffy cloud came and just covered the sun. It wasn't a rain cloud. It wasn't going to rain. It wasn't going to storm. It was a white, beautiful, puffy cloud, and it covered the sun, and I just thought, what a difference. What a difference. And I think it lasted it. The cloud stayed there and a breeze came when the sun was covered for the entire rest of the time I was cutting the grass and finishing the weed eating and everything. And I just think like, have you ever been to the beach or outside at a picnic on July 4th or cutting the grass or working in the yard or something? And that cooling cloud comes and just gives some serious relief for a few minutes as it passes by. It made me think about those Israelites, right? I was so thankful for that little cloud to give me some reprieve for such a short time, just when I was cutting the grass for one day for a few hours outside on a morning. Um, but and you think about those Israelites and God's presence in a cloud with them for 40 years, depending on how large it was, it could have made shade for them at times. Um, in the middle of the really blue, hot desert sky beating down on them for 40 years, seeing a cloud for shelter, for breeze, for guidance, that would have been an even greater relief than my little 30 minutes to finish up the yard cloud that I, well, while I finished cutting. Although I was incredibly grateful for it. So that's what I just made me think and imagine how much more grateful the Israelites would have been um, for the cloud of God's presence that we read about in this week. So now that we've come to the end of what we we're reading, we look at the book of Numbers and we see like there's still 26 chapters left. So, like, what else happens? Like, there's so much that happens in the last 26 chapters. The people wander around, um, if you're familiar with the story, we know the people wander around for 38 more years, and they don't even know that that's about to happen. Here in chapter 10, they don't, they have no awareness that they're about to wander around for 38 years. So, I'd like to encourage each of you to read the rest of the book of Numbers in the coming week. It does not take much time. It's very narrative with a lot of stories of mess-ups and decisions and moving and events and wandering and some surprises and some miracles Um, it reads pretty quickly now that you've gotten to chapter 10 where we've dealt with some of the detail parts so I just want to encourage you that for this week's teaching I want to look and see what we can learn practically for our hard crazy confusing wonderful everyday lives from this book of Numbers. So it's gonna be kind of an overview of things that we've studied and what's to come for these people, okay, the wandering people of God. So the first thing is sometimes we are in the waiting. Now that's some of what we have just covered. We've spent six weeks reading and studying what took place in the course of 20 days during the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. Yet yeah, there are only 20 days between Numbers 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to Numbers 10. Ver, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 11. That is part of the waiting. 20 days and all those things that we've read, the things that have happened. Well, the Israelites have left Egypt. They got organized. They're instructed in what to do. They are now prepped. They are ready. Now they're waiting. And yet, they're going to continue to wait. Sometimes we are in the waiting, okay? We have those times. I was trying to think of times that... um I've had to wait. I think of one that happened early on in life. I mean, of course, you're always waiting for Christmas or you're waiting for your birthday or you're waiting for grandparents to come visit when you're a kid. You're waiting for school to start after the summer or you're waiting for school to be finished. You know, those things that we wait for when we're younger. But then as we get older, one of the most waiting times I had um, younger was Tim and I were engaged and we were engaged for 14 months. Now, We don't recommend engagements for 14 months. It's just a really long time. And you want to go ahead and knit your lives together and knit your finances and your resources and yourselves, you know, together. And it's like, okay, 14 months. We know this is what we're supposed to do. We know this is what's supposed to happen, but we just have to wait. Well, we had to wait for his parents, who were missionaries, to get back into the country on their furlough so they could actually attend the wedding. So it was a valid reason for waiting. And oftentimes, that's what God does. There are valid reasons why we are in those waiting time. We may not see them. We may not understand them. But they're they're growing us and they're helping us. You know, in that time, I mean, Tim and I had to learn some self-discipline. We had to understand and we knew each other better when we got married. We um, were able to work our finances together and see how we spent money and see how we were going to do life together. We were able to make a plan. So there were things that happened in that waiting that God was using to prepare us. Um, I think about a harder time of waiting was the four years when my sister had cancer um, and treatments and everything and just the waiting, the waiting for the next test, the waiting for the next chemo, the waiting for the next doctor visit, the waiting for the next surgery, the waiting for the results of what's going to happen with that. There was just a lot of waiting and we walked through that uh, for four years, which many people have walked through longer um, and then it was just a long time waiting for results in either direction, understanding that things re- really weren't going the way that we would have on earthly ways in our hearts, you know, had hoped for. So there was some waiting for that. And I also think about a family member, uh, my aunt that married my uncle that married in the family. Um, she has been taking care of her aging mom who has Alzheimer's and it's been over 10 years It's been over 10 years that she has gone to take care of her, to visit her, to be in the nursing home with her, to just that waiting for 10 plus years in some really hard stuff. So sometimes we have waiting and it's because we're waiting for something really great. And sometimes we have waiting and it's because we're waiting during something difficult. Okay. Sometimes we are just in the waiting, but while we're there, God is at work. He is preparing us for what's next. He is working and he could be working in other people for things we can't see. Sometimes we think it's all about us and we have to understand it's not all about us. Sometimes there are things going on beyond us that, you know what? We might have to be on hold for a little while while things work out for someone else as well. Um, We cannot see all the ways that God is moving and working in every single part of every person's life at one time. We don't have that ability. It takes a huge amount of faith and trust when we're in those waiting times. We have to be committed to practicing trust during those times. So we have to practice it. Like it takes a huge amount of faith and trust. And then what happens during that time is that we have to practice trusting. I think that we could probably go around the room wherever you are, um, even if you're by yourself, and know that so many of you could tell me stories of times of waiting and what you saw God do while you're waiting and what he was preparing you for in the waiting and how you learn to trust more during that waiting. Okay, so that's the first thing. First thing is sometimes we're in the waiting. Second point that I really want to point out, okay, that's the part that we've read from Numbers 1 through 10, in the waiting, okay? We're going to look forward now, And number two is sometimes we challenge God's plan in not a good way. (laughs) In not a good way, as we will see with the nation of Israel does. So we're going to read, um, start reading here in Numbers chapter 11. So we're turning to a new chapter. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. I'll give you just a moment to get to Numbers chapter 11. Okay, Uh, starting with verse 1. Now the people began complaining openly in the ears of that's what that word means in hebrew now the be- people began complaining in the ears of before the lord about hardship now listen they hadn't even moved yet right here they are they've they been there they have these two trumpets that are built and all of a sudden god tells them the next section that we actually skipped from the end of chapter 10 is okay you're going to move from mount sinai to the wilderness of parian and here they are complaining uh, openly just straight out to the god When the Lord heard this, his anger burned and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was named Taberah, because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. Now it could be Taberah or Tabera. I don't know. I didn't actually look it up before I did this. Uh, Because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. Uh, the riffraff, I love that word, and that basically means the people who came out of Egypt with them, not everybody was an Israelite. Some people um, came out because they said, you know what, your Lord God who has done these things, who has done these 10 plagues, these 10 miracles, um, he's mighty and we want to be one of you. And so even though it says riffraff, some of your Bibles might say the mixed multitude, that would have been the people um probably outside of the Israelite people, okay? But they were living with them, so they had to follow the same rules. That was the expectation. God said, you can stay, but you have to follow the same rules. So uh, my version says, the riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food other than manna. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? We remember the fresh fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to do... There's nothing to look at but this manna. So they're clearly complaining. And here's what I don't like. I don't like that Israel, the people of God, all these tribes who were called by him, listen to the riffraff. I don't know if that's where we get the word or not. I'm sure not. That's probably, um, that's my translation's word. I understand that. But I love that. That's like, why are we listening to them? I don't know. But they did. Let's keep going. We're going to look in verse 10. So Moses heard the people family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents. And the Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, and you wonder like, well, who was Moses mad at? Was Moses mad at the people who were crying at their tent, thinking the Lord didn't provide? Look at the next verse. So Moses asked the Lord, why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with all these people? So he's actually angry at God. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nanny carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are weeping to give us meat Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now if I haven't found favor with you. And don't let me be in my misery anymore. Wow, that is the first time that we just really see Moses just absolutely have a hissy fit and complaint now we can't blame him he's been responsible for these two million two million people all by himself and here they are complaining and finally he just turns to god and said god why am i still doing this why am i still in charge of them move down to verse 18 tell the people consecrate yourselves in readiness for tomorrow and you will eat meat because you wept in the lord's hearing who will feed us meat we were better off in egypt the lord will give you meat and you will eat You will eat not for one day or for two days or for five days or for 10 days or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses replied, I'm in the middle of a people with 600,000 foot soldiers. Yet you say, I will give them meat and they will eat for a month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would they have enough? Or if all the fish in the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? Look at verse 23. The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm weak? Now you will see whether or not what I have promised will happen to you. So here he is, God's saying, you know what, you're asking for it. And that's what we have, like point number two. Sometimes we challenge God's plan. They were looking at the people. They had seen the people. No, they had seen God provide. They know that he has promised this land they're supposed to go to. He's spoken a blessing of covenant over them. Yet the moment they have to pack up and start actually doing something, moving from the wilderness of Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, they grumble and complain. They don't want it. They'd like to do a different plan. They'd like to challenge God's plan and say, God, I don't really like your plan anymore. They don't like how things are turning out and they have better ideas. Hey, let's go back to Egypt. We were better off there. Now, they have to move and listen and obey so they can get to that land. Do they not remember you are going to be in bondage and slavery for 400 years and then you're going to be released and then you're going to go to the promised land and here they are and they've decided, you know what, we'd rather go back to Egypt. Like he promised us this land, but we're not moving forward. We'd like to go backwards. They don't, again, they don't even know that they're going to be wandering for 40 years yet. They just think it's a bad weekend that they're having and they're tired of manna. And But they've already been on the move. So maybe, maybe the next place they would go would be the promised land. And here they are challenging God's plan. He has a plan. He's at work. He has told you what to do. Now, they... I mean, they have to move. They have to listen. They have to obey. They get to that land. They will stay there forever if they don't knock it off and be obedient. <laughs> I feel like anyone else ever been stubborn like those Israelites? And if you could see me, I have my hand raised because I have been stubborn like those Israelites. I do. I i there's a plan in place and God is at work. And I say, you know, what? I just don't like this plan. I don't like it. It's not the plan I had in mind. It's not what I wanted to see happen. I think that I might know better than this. Um, God, if you, if you just wouldn't do it this way and even Moses, how can Moses bring these words to God and say, he gets so sassy with them. You know, he says, Oh, like, even if we kill every herd, even if we fish, find every fish, like, did I have these children? So I would have to raise them and keep them. No, why do I, why is this my responsibility? Okay, even in his sassy, but God had a plan. The people were messing it up themselves. We do that. Now, they had no right to turn to God and fuss him for doing things wrong. They did not. They did, because, well, first of all, he wasn't doing it wrong. He was doing it in his plan and in his way. They had no right to turn to him at all. And they had only a right to complete obedience. And so even when I want to fuss at them, and I really do, um but I can't because I just really feel this one. I do. Um, I'm a person that I, I like things the way I like things. And I want to do things the way I want to do things. And when God has a different plan than what I think should happen, sometimes I am like an Israelite and I challenge the plan. So let's get to number three. Number three, sometimes... Other people mess up the plan God has for us. Now sometimes, like number two, sometimes we just do it ourselves. We make our own choices. We rebel against God. We are not obedient. Okay, but sometimes other people mess up the plan that God has for us. And we don't have a lot of control over that. Let's look. We're going to keep reading in Numbers chapter 13. So just turn your page in your Bible. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses. Send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Send one man who is a leader among them from each of their ancestral tribes. So we know 12 men are going to go. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the Lord's command. There's that phrase, at the Lord's command. All the men were leaders in Israel. Okay, so here he's picked 12 leaders, one from every tribe. They're going to go and they're going to go scout out the land. We're going to move on down to verses um 17 through 20, when Moses sent them to scout out the land of Canaan, he told them, this is what their directions were. This is what Moses directs as the Lord commands, okay? Uh, Go up this way to the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. Is the land they live in good or bad? Are the cities they live in encampments or fortifications? Is the land fertile or unproductive? Are there trees in it or not? Be courageous. Bring back some fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So here's the instructions. Now listen, nowhere in there is Moses asking the question to these 12 that are going up. Okay, when you get there, I want you to go and I want you to look and tell me, can we take the land or can we not take the land? Is this the promised land or is this not the promised land? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, go up, look at it. Are they strong or weak? Are they a lot or little? Is the land good or bad? Are the cities strong or not strong? I mean, they didn't say, because if they're strong, we can't do it. Or if there's a lot of people, we can't do it. Or if it's not in season and the harvest isn't happening, we don't want to do it yet. No, he was just asking questions. Come and bring a report about it. Okay, we're going to keep reading. That was... um, 17 We go to move on to verse 25 at the end of 40 days those 12 men returned from scouting out the land the men went back to Moses Aaron and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at K- Kadesh they brought back a report for them and the whole community and they showed them the fruit of the land they reported to Moses we went into the land where you sent us indeed it's flowing with milk and honey and here is some of its fruit however the people living in the land are strong." And the cities are large. And we also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people, and Caleb was one of those twelve. When Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land, because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him, those 10 other guys, not Joshua or Caleb, the 10 other guys responded, we can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. And this is what their negative report was. The land we pass through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. So this is their negative, bad report, okay? This is what they tell all the people, these 10 guys. Now, remember how many Israelites there were in fighting. And remember, God called them to count their military numbers in chapter 1 of Numbers. They have this in their head. Remember, they understand their ginormity. That's the word that I used, and everybody made fun of it because it's not really a word. But it's true. They understood their ginormity, okay? Okay. So Moses and Aaron, afterwards, they're trying to settle the people down, okay, in the next little section. And God is angry, and he's about to just destroy them all. He's like, okay, I'm done with y'all. I'm going to get rid of y'all. I'm going to start a new people. This is going to be so much better. I'm I'm, I'm done. Okay. Well, Moses begs for the people's forgiveness of their rebellion and of their sass, because there's definitely some sass there. And we're going to continue reading what happens in Numbers chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. So we'll turn 21 through 23. Yet, uh, the Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested. i sorry, I went back and read uh, verse 20. Yet, as surely as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory, this is what the Lord's response is. Okay, you ask for forgiveness. I will forgive them. I have pardoned them as you requested, Moses. Okay. Yet as surely as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, none of them, and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me, will ever see the land I swore to give their fathers. None of those who have despised me will see it. That's it. That's the moment where we find out, you know what? None of the people who came out of Egypt are going to make it into the promised land. So there was a decision and a response from 10 men that made a lifetime decision for the entire nation of Israel. That's the whole point of what I was saying, is that sometimes um, other people mess up the plan that God has for us. These 10 men came. Now they're going to wander for 40 years because of what these 10 men said in their negative report. Now I'd like to know what your translation says for that word negative report. Um when I get to my group I'm going to ask my group but your yours might have a different thing but either way it's a bad report. It's a negative report. It's a concerning report. It's a they give a report saying it's not possible. And I was thinking about this. Okay, what what example do I have where you know what sometimes somebody else messed up God's plan for us and the first thing that came to my mind which is not a heavy story or situation but it really is exactly what this situation is. Um, when Adam was younger, probably first or second grade, he was in Cub Scouts. And as a Cub Scout, you would be a part, you would participate in the Pinewood Derby, and you would take home your little block of wood, and you'd go home with your dad or your grandfather or your neighbor or whatever parental father role you had, and you would carve out your little car, and you would put the wheels together, and you would paint it, and you would decorate it, and everything. So Adam was so thrilled. He and my dad, um, who had a shop and was a carpenter um, by, not trade, by um, hobby, um, helped make his little car and everything. So he's so excited. Well, Adam wins the local division of Pine Car Derby. Like, yeah, he wins. His is the fastest car. It's fantastic. So he's getting ready to go to a regional Pine Car Derby with Cub Scouts from all over the place that we don't know from further distances away. And we show up, it was at um, Florida State, one of their campuses. We showed up at the college on a Saturday morning saying, okay. And what happened is the Cub Scout leader had to collect all the pine carbs that were going to participate. And they had to be all taken and there. We show up Saturday morning. Adam is super excited. Come to find out his Cub Scout leader forgot his car. The car was not there. And if I tell you, you can bring up Pinewood Derby car race to Adam today and he will still have a little bit of a bitter attitude on him and he will still have some sadness. And that day there were definitely tears. And I think we had to make pretty big promises of ice cream, but there's nothing we could do about it. Adam wasn't responsible for this. He wasn't responsible that he couldn't participate in this. It was somebody else had messed up the plan for Adam and his Pine Car Derby. It was out of our control. And that's what happens. That's a really small example, but this is so true in some really big ways. There may be some events happening in your life now that you don't have control over how things go. You're on a path that you didn't choose because someone else made that choice for you. God does not plan for parents to be abusive. He doesn't want bosses to be unfair. He doesn't want employees to be lazy. He doesn't want our children to make terrible decisions for themselves. But that all happens and more. And the things that other people are choosing, just like these 10 men were choosing, affected the Israelites for the next 40 years. So we have to know sometimes it is out of our control. And that's when, again, we have to take a faith step and just say, okay, God, we trust you with this. We trust you with this. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how, I didn't get in it myself. I don't necessarily even deserve this. This was not my choice or my path. We just have to trust him in that. Now. As a side note, we need to be sure that we are in the word, listening to his direction and making choices for our lives that don't affect someone else's walk where they're supposed to be. We don't want to be one of the 10. And sometimes we probably have been at some point in our life, a person who got somebody else off the path that they were supposed to be on, who gave the wrong direction. And now they're Walking down a different path. It could be a very small, insignificant thing like a Pinewood Derby car. It can have some huge ramifications. So we have to be sure that we are not one of the 10. Okay, point number three. Oh, point number four. Lost track. Point number four. God will fulfill his promise and be consistently who he is. Listen to this. The same God we saw in Numbers 1 demanding the census be taken. The same God we saw in Numbers 2, setting up the camp for order and protection of the tabernacle. The same God we saw in Numbers 3, redeeming the firstborn through the Levites. The same God in Numbers 4, assigning tasks to each man by name. The same God in Numbers 5, caring for the woman wrongly accused. And the same God that's in Numbers 6, speaking a blessing over his people the same God in number 7 accepting those offerings of every tribe as the carts came by as the people came by and the same number the same God in numbers chapter 8 preparing the levites to be consecrated to him the same God in numbers 9 leading the people with his presence as a cloud and a pillar of fire the same God in numbers 10 completing his instructions with silver trumpets and blast of sound is the same God That brought those 2 million people out of Egypt. And he is the same God that will lead them to the land that he has promised. He has not changed. Now, we're not going to leave them there. We're going to get them to the promised land. So let's look in Joshua. We're going to change books. We have to change books to get them there. Joshua, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Joshua 3, verse 1. Joshua started early the next morning and left the acacia grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. So the Jordan River, and they haven't crossed it yet. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, carried by the Levitical priest, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way. For you haven't traveled this way before. All of their wandering and all of their time. I absolutely love this verse. There's always something that stands out to me when I'm doing this study in preparation. And I love this. You haven't traveled this way before. And there are some of us who are traveling some paths right now that we have not traveled before. And it just says, you know what? Follow so that you can see the way to go because you haven't followed, you haven't gone here before. Now for the people, that should be a symbol. wait a second, we've been, follow, we've been wandering this wilderness for 40 years. All the people of the previous generation are now gone, and we're about to get ready and go somewhere where we haven't been before? That should be pretty exciting to them. Go down to verse number uh, verse 14. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, and the promised land is on the other side of the Jordan River when they cross it. They've never crossed the Jordan. In all this time of wandering, they have not crossed the Jordan because it is the other side of the Jordan is the promised land. Okay, so here they go. Verse 14, when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflows its banks through the harvest season. But as soon as the priests carrying the Ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge. And the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all of Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't that sound familiar to us as the people left Egypt? And how as they got closer, God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. So they walked on dry land, crossing the Red Sea as they went into this wandering. And here they are. The moment the priest's toes touched the water, the Jordan River, the water flows. It backs up. And they don't just walk across soggy mess. That's not what it says. Like, it was damp. It was mildly damp. No, they walked across dry ground until the entire nation, millions of people, had finished crossing the Jordan. So they made it there into the promised land. So it does. It takes 20 more chapters in numbers. And then, of course, now we've turned to a completely different book in the Bible. But we know that they arrive and they have settled in the land. It happens because God has promised it to him. It happens because God says it's going to happen. Because God will fulfill his promise and he will be consistently who he is. So what do we do with that? Uh, Tim likes to say in his sermon, you know, what's next? So what do we do? And I think there's, we, we wait and we have to wait well. We have to, we can't wait impatiently and we can't wait stomping our foot and we can't wait saying, okay, God, when are you going to make it my turn? Okay, God, did you see what those other people did? Did Okay, God, I got on this path because of their horrible mistake. Like, no, we have to wait well. We have to follow in the obedience that we are called to and we live knowing that he will fulfill his promise. So I think, okay, that's really easy to say. I need an example. We're going to turn to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So it should just be the next page in your Bible. Joshua 4. After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, Choose twelve men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them, Take twelve stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing. Carry them with you and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So Joshua summoned the twelve men he had selected from the Israelites, one man for each tribe, and said to them, Go across to the ark of the Lord your God, and then go across to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone onto his shoulder, one for each of the Israelite tribes, so that this will be a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, What do these stones mean to you? You should tell them The water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. I want to keep reading. We're going to look at 21, verse 21. Just move down to 21. Um, Then Joshua, actually, we'll start with 20. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones that he had taken from the Jordan. So actually, Joshua goes and he takes 12 um, from this. Oh, no, no, no. That's it. Sorry. Well, Joshua does. 12 men take 12 stones and they set them up outside on the bank of the Jordan River. And then Joshua takes 12 stones from the bank and he puts them down in the middle of the Jordan River. That's just a little piece of side note. So verse 20, Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. Just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So, when we read this out of Joshua, I think, okay, so how do we do that? How do we wait well? How do we follow in obedience? How do we live knowing that he's going to fulfill his promises? Sometimes you have to find your stones. Sometimes you have to go back and find those markers of the times where God has worked and moved and directed and fulfilled his promises to you before and remember them. Tim recently preached a sermon um, about the Ebenezer and the Ebenezer was this uh, symbolic thing that was also something to remember forever that you have this and here here I hold my Ebenezer, however the song goes. Like it was this memorial marker. Sometimes we have to go back to those. So we have to find those 12 stones. All of us in here have places where we can point to God working in our lives. The places, they can be huge places where we're like, it was so obvious. It was so God. He worked in this way. It was miraculous. It was massive. I just point to him and say, this is so God. That God worked this. Or it can be really small things that sometimes we don't see and we don't open our eyes to really know and feel and experience. And perhaps no one else even knows what those places are. You may just know that. You may have something in your head that you're like, man, that was a stone for me. In that moment, that was a marker for me. Okay, numbers and so much of the Old Testament, it just continues to point and say, don't forget this. Tell your children. Don't forget this. Tell one another. Don't forget this. This is a marker. This is a reminder. Go back to those places. Find your stones and remember the way that God has worked and moved and fulfilled his promises to you. Now, also keep in mind, God does not need us to remember or to have markers for him, for his sake. God doesn't need us to do that for him. <laughs> he well knows. He knows. He's known all the markers and the stones that we've picked up in the middle of the Jordan River from our whole entire lives till this point, And he knows what's going to happen next. He does not need those for him. He gives those instructions because he knows we will need them. Some days in this life, we will need them. And some days we'll need them for ourselves. And some days we're going to need them to share with somebody else. This is how God worked in me. He knows we will need them. He's so good, y'all. He's so good. We see that in numbers. That continues throughout the Old Testament. And then the passages that we've read and looked at in the New Testament of just Jesus coming and fulfilling all of this. And such a provision for us in all of it. His love for us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the study in numbers that we've had. I thank you for the way that we can see your character. That you are a God of love. You are a God of expectations for our lives. Lord, that you are a God that expects obedience from us. Lord, you are a holy God that can be with holy people. Lord, when we come to know you and we've asked that forgiveness for our sins. And you have come and now you dwell in us as you're living tabernacles, walking around, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Words are not enough to express and say how much we thank you and love you for the work that you've done. Lord, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for this book that we can study and understand and see more of your character, that we can share among each other, that we can talk about it discuss it, Lord, that as we read it, it is living and active and it comes alive for us. And while it is your story, of who you are, that we can understand you more, it does guide and direct our lives, Lord. We thank you. Lord, I thank you finally for just every one of the women that's participated in this study. I pray that you will bless them. I pray that you will um, keep them accountable and hold them and open their eyes to see points of where they can trust you more and obey you more and worship you more and love you more and know that you love and receive them. Lord, I thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.